Morrison plays the blame game on coronavirus vaccines. Big business calls for a wage freeze. New Zealand welcomes Australians again. Seabirds are getting a giant sandcastle. And there's almost blue skies over California. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am Ben Davison, your co-host, with you as always after this glorious long Easter weekend that everyone has enjoyed. And joining me, as always, is the internet infamous Van Batham. How are you, Van? <laughs> I'm great. I've had the best Easter. I was superb. Yes, it's... Uh, firstly, I want to thank everybody for making us the number one politics podcast in Australia. We were really happy about that. We were so excited. We just couldn't believe it. And we wanted to thank all of you who tuned in and have supported us, whether it's been over the past six days or six months since we started doing the show. It's just fantastic to feel that there is an audience for our kind of zany left-wing commentary on the world. (laughs) It has been really, really pleasing and, yeah, just really grateful to everyone who has listened, downloaded, shared, commented, engaged with us. You know, we haven't always got everything right. We haven't always, you know, taken a view that's always been entirely popular with everyone, Uh, but we've really respected everybody's feedback and input, so that's been really, really great. And your feedback means that we constantly refine what we're doing and we just love it. We just love being part of a conversation of a community of people who care about social justice and equality and egalitarianism and the kind of values that are important to us. So thank you so much. That's right. So big, big week again this week, even though it's a short working week. uh, Of course, Today, uh, we've seen the continuation of Scott Morrison's blame game. So, Australia has not met the vaccination targets set by Scott Morrison. And Now, it's funny you should mention Scott Morrison and vaccination targets, because I seem to remember when coronavirus was a massive public emergency, when we were going through the endless or awful lockdowns in, in Victoria where we were all really struggling to get our heads around this horrible, horrible virus and keep ourselves safe. I seem to recall there was rather a lot of delegating to the states by Scott Morrison and rather a lot of criticism afterwards. Everything Daniel Andrews did was terrible. Everything that Mark McGowan did was terrible. Everything Anastasia Palaszczuk was terrible. I wonder what those three people have in common. I mean, I'm just I'm just wondering. But well, but all of all of that, what should have been, I think, a national mitigation strategy was devolved to the states to deal with. Yeah. And Scott Morrison, of course, was going to be Mr. Vaccine. He was going to be Vaccine Santa. Now, tell me, Ben, is it Christmas? Is it? Well, it's possibly a Tim Allen Christmas because it seems to. <laughs> completely come off the rails. Um, So, you know, Morrison is out there and he's, of course, blaming the states. It's the states' fault. The states have failed to roll this out, even though... How do you blame Daniel Andrews when he has a broken back? I don't know. But, you know, even even the New South... He did it on purpose! On purpose! (laughs) Even the New South Wales Liberal government has really taken umbrage at some of the Morrison claims. You know, they've come out and said that they don't even know which aged care facilities have been vaccinated or how many people have been vaccinated. Nobody can find figures on um, workers in aged care facilities having been vaccinated. Uh, the, the you know the Morrison government is over three million doses behind schedule. Uh, nobody can provide any details with how many uh, doses have been made in Australia, where they've been sent in Australia, what the wastage rate is, because of course not every single dose of vaccine that gets made actually ends up in someone's arm because 
Sometimes there are storage problems. Sometimes people don't show up for their appointments. So they're, they're actually, with the flu vaccine, for example, they reckon that the wastage number is around 50%. So there's quite, you know, you need a lot of vaccines to actually get to sort of 4 million um, actual vaccinated people. You need, you know, 8 million vaccines, roughly, maybe at least six if you're really stringent on it. So it's it's just a total disaster. Morrison has blamed the states. He has blamed the European Union. Uh, he has tried to uh, blame the media today uh, for making this a big beat up and it's all the media's fault. Uh, he's basically blamed everyone except himself. I think he needs to blame Bob Dylan for going electric and I also <laughs> think he needs to blame the Smurfs. I just don't think the Smurfs are really copying the criticism they deserve in this situation. Maybe somebody should organise a social media pylon to the Smurfs because, I mean, that's a logical thing to do, right? Well, you know, Scott Morrison does have a slight Gargamel-esque tinge to him now. In his- oh, my God, he really does. That's probably why it's on my mind. <laughs> but, you know, it's it's quite outrageous. It, it, you know, we are so far away from where we need to be. There was – people might remember Morrison promised that CSL, the, the which actually stands for Commonwealth Serum Laboratories, formerly a Commonwealth um, organisation, now a private company, obviously, um, because, because it's privatised. Because everything privatised. Yeah, great. <laughs> gonna- because we are never, ever – going to need a Commonwealth Serum Laboratory. I mean, why did they even build one in the first place? I know. Well, they were going to make a million vaccines a week. Privatisation is... Bad. They have not achieved this target, of course. They're about 800,000, which isn't, look, it's, that's not terribly terrible, but of course, the cumulative effect of missing by roughly 20% week on week means that in the first month, a million doses of vaccine are not created that needed to be created. Like, it, it accumulates quite quickly when you're talking about those sorts of numbers. So, this is a real problem. Like, it's a real problem because we saw in Queensland the the need for a lockdown. It happened. It was short. It was sharp. It seems to have worked. That's great. But the way to avoid lockdowns, and everybody says this, the, the IMF came out today and said, you know, economic recovery around the globe is going to be um, is going to require vaccines and vaccination programs and to make sure that we don't have to have lockdowns we are so far behind i saw i saw one person um say that we're we're now at the same level as sort of north korea like australia the hermit kingdom this is not where we were promised to be we were promised no to- and this is the thing we're being massively outstripped and i hate i hate admitting this by the united states yeah like the like the biden administration has taken this unbelievably seriously and turned it around and their vaccine effort has been absolutely amazing well they're doing in a day they're doing more in a day than we've done in total Right, great. Like that's that's beaten where they're by at. America. Everybody, I want you to recall those days. You're getting beaten the by 19- Boris Johnson. Yeah, I was about to say that, and like, yeah, Boris Johnson. My God, and I mean that is what is so terrifying. I mean, the Johnson response in the UK has to the coronavirus has been disastrous. Yeah, like it has been a series of missteps and unbelievably stupid policy ideas that led to a mass infection rate. Um, as p- people on this show may don't know, that uh, an old friend of mine died from complications from coronavirus um, that was caught when it was just at just incredible levels. You know, other heaps of my English friends have had it. They had the long tail version for months and months and months. It is Australians really have no idea what it's been like in other parts mm. of the world. But 
the Johnson administration has managed to run a vaccine program. And you could say, you could make the argument that in America and England they've had to, like it's been sink or swim. There have been... Sorry, Van, what is the dog doing? I think he's trying to eat the green screen, and right. I don't know why. Germanicus? Just leave it alone, mate. Sorry. <laughs> Just whatever. Ah, shed life. Uh, Live yeah, in the shed life. Yeah. But you're right. I mean, sorry. So, you know, Oh, yes, well, Boris thank you for Johnson. your comments, sir. <laughs> Boris Johnson. It, the, the, the clown prince of Western democracies, really, you know, he, he was making such a hash of this, and now, of course, he's got this vaccine rollout. It's going really well. The US is going really well. Europe, who, of course, is manufacturing a lot of vaccines, uh, is massively behind in terms of getting its vaccine numbers. And this is part of the reason why AstraZeneca is unable to export to Australia, right, is that AstraZeneca, the company, is not been producing as many vaccines as it promised it would for all these other countries. And so, of course, they're not getting export licenses, you know. Scott Morrison can blame other countries as much as he likes, but the reality is the UK, the US, they're manufacturing their own to a large extent. They have that infrastructure in place. They've they've realised very quickly that when it came to a global pandemic, relying on imports from other countries for medicines that would be in short supply was a foolish thing to do. I mean, when Boris Johnson has out-strategised you, you know you're in a bit of a pickle, bit of a bind. Maybe you've failed the policy threshold. Bit of a failure. Bit reckon? of a failure. Bit of a failure. Scott. Scott, I am not, in fact, like vaccine Santa Morrison. That's right. So, it's so disillusioning. Like, I'm sorry to harp on about this, but I would just once love the Liberal government just because of my own love of this country to live up to their own hype. Like, we get these massive, hugely expensive, the Australian government's going to do this, the Australian government's going to do that. It's an announcement festival, yeah. their approach to politics. And just once, just once, for the sake of the Australian people, would I like what they promised to be true? Just once. Or even just to be honest about it. Even just to be honest about it, to say, look, we're not going to be at the front of the queue because we are an island nation and we have self-isolated from the rest of the world, effectively. And, and it hasn't been as bad here. And, and it hasn't been as bad here because Australians got it and they locked down and they wore their masks and and we mobilised public and, sentiment behind prevention. And you, the people of Australia, have done the right thing. You know, you have done the right thing. And, you know, why can't the Prime Minister come out and say, and thank you so much for doing that. As a result of doing that, it's not as urgent for us to have the vaccine as it is for some other countries. You know, France has gone into another lockdown. Oh. Germany's have all sort, Germany has all sorts of restrictions. But it's this Italy, weird... Spain, Brazil is in a total meltdown. Oh, yeah. Brazil's a shocker. Like, there's there are entire towns that are effectively being wiped out by coronavirus in Brazil. It's terrifying. But I do want to speak to, like, an article I saw the other day that said that Australia's response to coronavirus might be hampered in the long term by vaccine hesitancy. Yeah. You know, the, the, the anti-vaxxers have been so dedicated to their bizarre cause, their frankly bizarre anti-vaccine cause, mm. which has no basis in logic, reality, empathy, prevention or science, mm. that that there are people who are not necessarily anti-vaxxers who have doubts about the vaccine. Yeah. And yeah. I just want to say to those people, vaccines are the greatest gift of modern technology. They keep us alive. The reason why people don't die of smallpox anymore is because of the invention of the vaccine. And this is part of the problem, isn't it? Because at the, at the end of the day, the Morrison government has promised all these things about the vaccine. They've promised people will get 
they'll get vaccinated, they'll be able to be safe. Now, failure to deliver on that undermines people's confidence in the whole concept of yeah, vaccines. Yeah, it really does. And and the idea that we're back to normal and that everything's suddenly okay, and we're, f- we're feeling it in our communities, you know, yeah. things are opening up again, but the danger hasn't passed. And this happened in Europe, remember, and the US, where we're, we're essentially a few months behind them in terms of where they're up to in the seasonal rollout of, of these sorts of diseases. And and they all thought last, they thought, you know, oh, summer's here, it's all fine, it's all going to be great, we'll open up again. And their numbers dropped and people were like, oh, it's all back to normal and then the vaccine will come and we'll be totally fine. Well, winter came. You know, winter is coming, folks. We live in Australia. We've just had summer. It's been a great summer, but we still had some COVID in our communities, probably to a degree, slightly more than some of the European countries who thought they had it under control in their summer. Now, we're going to go into our winter, and we're going to go into winter with millions and millions of Australians who should have been vaccinated, not vaccinated. I'm worried that it's a huge problem. Yeah, I'm worried too. And that's why we need the vaccine in the community. Yes, I agree. And, and you know, start with our most vulnerable first. Start with our most exposed first. You know, I'm thrilled my mother, because my mother is immunocompromised. Yeah. And she's had a vaccine. Yeah. And I just cannot tell you the enormous amount of relief that knowledge has brought me as a daughter who lives a thousand kilometres away from her, you know, which is an awful circumstance, mother, you really should (laughs) move south. I know you're listening. But the fact that she has been vaccinated is literally helping me sleep at night because it's not over. And this virus has been so adaptable, so unpredictable. The part of the idea of moving really quickly with a vaccine response is preventing another mutation. Yeah, that's right. Because if the virus is as fast and terrifying as it has demonstrated itself to be for this past year, like getting a vaccine rollout wrong means the virus has more time. It buys the virus time. And that's what they're seeing in Brazil. They're seeing in Brazil yet another mutation because it's had that opportunity to spread to so many more people. Look, you know, this is... This is an issue that's not going to go away, obviously. Um, we we are millions of doses and millions of vaccinations behind schedule. Scott Morrison continues to blame all and sundry. Smurfs. It's just outrageous. In my view, the Commonwealth has responsibility for the health of the nation. Um, he wanted... This was the one part of dealing with coronavirus that he wanted. Um, he got it. And now he seems to think it's everybody else's problem but his. Outclassed by Boris Johnson. What a horrible, (laughs) horrible legacy. (laughs) Look, I want to move on to some core economics things that are coming up. So the minimum wage case, people who are regular listeners to this show will know that the minimum wage case happens every year. It sets the base minimum wages that are payable in Australia to working people. Uh, And the ACTU, the Australian Council of Trade Unions, peak union body, puts in a claim uh, to the Fair Work Commission every year. Uh, This year, they're advocating for a $26 a week increase. Uh, And of course, the different business lobbies and the governments around Australia put in uh, submissions as well. And as happened last year and pretty much the year before as well, uh, the, those business lobbies and the Commonwealth Government have basically said don't increase the minimum wage um, because the economy isn't doing well enough and it'll cost jobs. Uh, also today, the Morrison Government came out and said the economy is doing even better than predicted and will grow by 4.5% over the next 12 months. And this is the, this is the great 
you know, mistruth about all of this as an event because at the end of the day, when the economy is going well, they say don't raise wages because it'll overheat the economy. When they say when the economy is doing badly, they say don't raise wages because it'll cost jobs. And, and ben, the reality I'm, is completely different, isn't it? I'm I'm picking up a theme here that's about n- not raising wages ever because either that's the right. economy is going well and we can't raise wages or it's doing badly and we can't raise wages or it's the same as it always has been and we don't want to lose our equilibrium by raising wages. It's almost as if working people are not important to what people consider an economy to be. I come from a very alternative school. I'm like, you actually measure an economy and how well the people who work and live in it are doing as opposed to how the Tories measure an economy, which is how well big business is doing. And we all know that sloppy business practice, people who aren't really interested in that enterprise thing, Mm. the way that they deliver profits to their shareholders is by, and it was crazy prediction, by Karl Marx, who wrote rather a lot about this stuff by squeezing their workers for more and more and more labour for less and less and less pay. And funnily enough, that's exactly what's going on. So profits in our economy are up, you know. Turns out that the uh, job keeper program uh, has helped a whole range of companies increase their profits, and profits are up anywhere between eight and fifteen percent, depending on which measure you use. And of course, they're up in places like retail, which is a lot of um, minimum wage workers, uh, and they're up for the big chains, so your Coles, your Woolworths, who have their wages set to and anchored against the minimum wage. Minimum wage increases would help those workers. These are our frontline workers. These are the people who six months ago... Were risking their lives yeah. to deliver groceries. And remember when Scott Morrison said, if you've got a job, you're an essential worker? Whatever happened to that? You know, apparently now it's like, oh, if you've got a job, you're an essential worker. But if you're on a minimum wage, yeah, you're only as essential as you are so we can squeeze every last ounce of productivity out of you for... Less and less money and comparatively less money because oh, it's just so frustrating. And I know I've Can said I just it- on the comparatively less? Because this that's a really like just that's a really important point. So retail sector, right? Like these are the workers who restocked those shelves when people were stripping them bare out of fear and anticipation of long lockdowns, right? Those workers, their wages have gone up one percent. One percent in the last twelve months. What amazing gratitude. In the rest of the economy, Wages have gone up 1.4. So that's nearly 40, that's so 40% more. The workers who were exposed to the most risk, because they were the most socialised yeah. workers. Among the, the ones, most risk, yeah, yeah, for sure. Among the most risk and were absolutely the front line of total social madness. Yep. And we know that from conversations we've had with the retail workers where oh, we live. And anybody who walked into a supermarket, right? <laughs> yeah, so Ben started using the word Thunderdome as a verb during. Like, I don't know if people in other states understand just how weird it got in Victoria because it did. It was terrifying. It was a terrifying time. And going to the supermarket could be really tense, like, because we there was no pasta. Yeah. And it, it was not only the toilet paper when first they came from the, for the toilet paper, then they came for the paper towel and the tissue. And then it was like everything. At one point I thought, are people out there wiping their bums with, like, baking paper? Like, what is going on? And it was really frightening. And I, Ben was like, you're not going to the supermarket. Like, I just don't trust people at, at the moment. Because Ben, I, I don't know if you guys know this, is, is a big buffy bloke. Like, he's 6'1". And I'm this tiny little person, this leprechaun. 
on, girl. And, uh, people, and were he would, people, and people were thunder doming. People were about to thunder dome each other. He was thunder doming. Oh, that guy almost thunder domed me in the like tomato cans of yeah. tomato section. You know, I thought I was going to get thunder domed for sure. You know, when I reached for a banana. No, no, there was going to be a serious thunder doming in the frozen onion section. You know, the good like, news there, of course, is that that didn't happen. Um, but it felt like it, it could happen. It felt like it could happen. And of course, we all remember some of those videos on social media where people did lose their cool and did lose control. And they thunder domed one another. And they thunder domed one another. <laughs> and it was the retail workers who were caught in the middle of that. Yeah, who were running, not only selling things and stocking shelves, but running security and interference yeah. on some extremely tense personal moments. Yeah. And these are, these are the people now who, that the, the, the big business lobbyists and the Morrison government say, yeah, we shouldn't really increase their wages. I just, I've said it on the show before, but it's that old line that they use in America, that people who are, what people are saying when they're opposed to minimum wage increases is there, and opposed to minimum wage is really they'd pay you nothing if they thought they could get away with it. Absolutely. Like this is why we have to have wage standards. And we know because the research, and this is, I just get so frustrated. You know, I've been, I've been in this space for a decade and I know there's other people who've been in it a lot longer and, you know, my, they have my utmost respect because frankly, it's so frustrating to see the same tired, disproven tropes wheeled out again and again and again and again. And it, and it doesn't matter to the Morrison government. And it doesn't matter to so many of these people what the truth of the matter is. It doesn't matter to them what the evidence actually shows. Because the evidence actually shows that if you increase minimum wages, it helps small business. It actually drives consumer behaviour in communities, but small communities, But we saw that. We saw that and we've talked about that. We've talked about the opportunities when JobSeeker was coming through, uh, doubled and when... People JobKeeper- spend the money. People spent the money. And, I mean, our little town was going through a consumer renaissance. Yeah. People opened shops because they had money in their pocket, because they knew that their neighbours had money in their pocket, because they knew they could afford to buy not not yachts and luxury cars, but they could afford to buy, you know, maybe a slightly nicer cut of meat. Or maybe they'd buy... A, you know, a new T-shirt rather than having to shop at the op shop. Or this buy month. one another a gift. Or buy which a was gift. Really important during coronavirus, people sending gifts to one another and little things to stay connected was actually a really important part of the lockdown process. And here we are. You remember, I got somebody sent me some magnets and I burst into Yeah. Tears. You know, and here we are now. We're not even really fully out of the pandemic, and the Morrison government has reverted to form, and the big business lobby has reverted to form, and you know they've just gone back to the same old tired tribes. Oh, increasing wages will cost jobs. Well, no, it doesn't. Look at the research. Actually pay some attention to what's happened around the world when minimum wages have gone up. New Zealand, where we can all now go, thank you, St. Ardern, has increased its minimum wage, right? And has its economy collapsed? No, quite the opposite. There are states in America where they've increased the minimum wage. And what's happened? Oh, actually, businesses have gone to those states. Oh, Costco, its minimum wage is higher than Walmart's. Costco's a more profitable and well-respected company. Ah, more pro- has greater productivity. These people who just don't, they're choosing not to get it. They're choosing not to get it because it suits them. And as you say, Mark's talked about it, right? This has been, this has been known for a lot longer than the 10 years that I've been in this space. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that you squeeze, they squeeze the workers, they squeeze down the wages, they take as much as they possibly can. And, and I want to I want to raise this issue as well, Van, because I think this dovetails really just su- supremely poorly 
but it's it's the truth of the matter. Uber came out this week as the second biggest employer in inverted commas in Australia. Uber. Uber, it's outrageous. Who has fought legal case after legal case after legal case to not be considered an employer. Is oh, but now, just a platform. Just a platform. Is now bragging about how important it is to the Australian economy because it's the second biggest employer. You know? Can I just say... It's unbelievable. So I notoriously have an ideological problem with the Greens. Yes. And a lot of it has to do with a speech that I just genuinely couldn't believe any person who called themselves progressive would ever give. And it was Senator Nick McKim from Tasmania gave a maiden speech when he ended Parliament, what, five years ago, Mm. where he praised Uber and Mm. talked about how Uber was just fantastic because it just, you know, cut out out the middleman basically and, you know, it connected consumers directly to the services they need. And he gave such praise to this concept of deregulating labour markets to the point where, you know, we could see Uber expand to childcare and to labour hire. And it's like... And the NDIS. That's literally creating an economy in which people will be totally, utterly exploited and essentially create an indentured servant class. Like, it is the most outrageous business model. It crept into communities by stealth, effectively. Mm. Governments were not didn't prevent preventatively legislate. Mm. And when you get people who call themselves progressive standing up in parliament going, oh, you know, and with the there's a line in his speech where he talks about the Greens will be there with them, the lightest possible regulatory touch from government. The lightest possible regulatory touch from government is what resulted in indentured servitude in the, like, the early modern period, you know, absolutely tightly regulated labour markets and restrictions on the behaviour of, like, just corporate locust plagues like Uber are the only guarantee people have of any purchase in the economy and any protection as workers. It is, yeah, and so, by the way, when people are like, why does Van have a problem with the Greens? It's like, because I have a problem with capitalism, because I have a problem with exploitation, <laughs> because I have a problem with Uber. There, I have said it publicly. And... And can I just add to that, right? Like, this is not... We've, we started this part of the, the podcast talking about the minimum wage. Uh, and, you know, what's Uber got to do with the minimum wage? Well, this is a whole section of the economy where minimum wages are not applied. They're not applied. You know, because these, you're a small business these person. Are digital sham, these are digital sham contracting arrangements. Now, there's nothing that says... There's nothing that says... You have to exploit someone to use technology, right? There's nothing that says that. You don't have to have an exploitative relationship in order to use a platform. No, because you could have the heavy government regulation. You could have regulation. To protect people from That's exploitation. Right. You could have you could have a properly regulated market. You could take the wages out of competition. You could create essentially an ecosystem that encourage platforms to be the employer, and and there is this there is this ongoing um, this discussion debate, and it's starting to to really um, coalesce around the NDIS because the platforms are now in that space. We saw that during the pandemic, with the the Commonwealth government supporting a platform provider, right, to provide aged care. Uh, workers, which it couldn't do because it was a platform provider uh, that didn't actually employ people. At the same time, there, there are some platform providers in the NDIS who do employ people, who are trying to make that model work. And the reality of this is that if government stays out of 
the whole thing. If government goes, anyone can do whatever they like. You get the Wild West. You get the Wild West. You do get the Wild West. That's people... literally what the Wild West yeah. was. Get... It's a completely unregulated labour market that involved things like, oh, slavery and indentured servitude. That is literally right. what you get. That's right. So so we have to... Can I have a full disclosure here? The reason why I maybe get really upset about this and ha- use the word indentured a lot. Yeah. So my father died a few years ago yeah. and I went through you know very normal process of grief where I wanted to research my family. Where had we come from? What was our story? Yeah. And I found out the only reason there were any records of my family um, for hundreds of years was because they were owned by another family. They were indentured servants. Yeah. So I come from a family of stable hands who didn't used to get married because they had no property to transact. That was a fun thing I learned. And it was just that whole concept that we are not that far removed from an economic model. And that's like that's a post-feudal model yeah. of employment as well that vast numbers of people were employed within. Yeah. And I just, I can't, it, it is unfathomable to me that there are people who literally have their hands on the levers of the economy who want to return and reduce us to a world in which you are totally dependent on the patronage of another family or a, a business or another community that has more privileges and effectively more active rights than you do because they have more wealth. And that's where we're going. And they've done studies about this in America, about the class that you were born into in the United States of America is now the single largest determinant of any opportunity that you may have. That you might be the cleverest kid in the school, but if your parents are working for Uber, like if they're in that deregulated yep. like platform economy model, your opportunities in life are not the same if your parents are teachers or if your parents are small like various kinds of business owner mm. or corporate executive or the inheritors of vast wealth themselves. Wealth is now the single largest determinator of opportunity in the United States. In the United States, land of the free, except everything comes at a price. And we don't have to accept that. No. We don't have to accept that. There is nothing written in stone. Fates are not set, right? But they are determined by policy. Outcomes in people's lives are determined and shaped by policy. And this is why it's, you know, this is part of the reason why I'm so passionate about this show. And I know you are as well about having these conversations to say, hang on a minute, what is the policy direction here? And what is this going to mean for people? Because the reality is that if we allow the Wild West to, to, come into play again, if we allow indentured servitude to come into play again, if we say that somebody driving a cab or providing care or or delivering our food is, a, is actually running a small business when they're entirely dependent on the whimsy of an algorithm through a platform that's owned by billionaires. Who do nothing, who do don't nothing. actually do the work themselves. They just provide the technology and live And we it. say those people, those people delivering that food, delivering that service, you know, delivering that care are somehow a business when they buy themselves, when they've had, you know, they might have a certificate two or a certificate three in a particular thing. They have no infrastructure. They have no accounting team. They have no legal team. They have no marketing. If we're saying, oh, but they're a business and they're entering into a contract on equal terms, on equal footing with a company the size of Uber, then we are we are deliberately and purposefully ignoring the truth and the reality of the situation and we are condemning people 
and generations of people to mistreatment, exploitation, and a modern form of slavery. And it's unacceptable. It's unacceptable. So yeah. fight for the minimum wage, people. Fight for rights at work. Yeah, it's so Ben important. and I don't use Uber. Can you tell? Yeah, we don't. We don't use those services. And it, and that and that's the reason why. So look, nothing is set in stone. You know, if the Morrison government doesn't think you should be paid properly, don't elect the Morrison government. <laughs> You know, like it's simple, isn't it? You know, if you want, if you want the rights to which you believe you're entitled, elect governments that will deliver those rights. Don't elect governments who'll lie about it and then behind your back give information to a tribunal that says, no, 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 don't pay those people, don't pay those people. We've got to prop up the profits. We've got, we've got to give Solomon Lou and Jerry Harvey money. We can't Jerry be paying Harvey. people. You know, I saw a meme of Jerry Harvey laughing the other day and even seeing him smile on that man's face, I found insulting. Well, you Because know, of all the JobKeeper money he has kept. That's right. While he made record profits, record profits through his Harvey Norman stores and his other brands, because he owns a few, yeah. Joyce Mayne's one of him, there's a whole bunch, and he's not giving it back. No. and Not and giving back $22 million. How many schools would that be? How many vaccines yeah. would be supplied with a nice $22 million injection, do you reckon? Uh, I think it's more than that. But, like, whatever it is, probably beyond my my imagination, the amount of money that Jerry Harvey has sucked from the taxpayer over this period. And I'm just like, and your mum could have her vaccine. You know? Yeah, that's like, right. And frankly, to, to, to take that money from taxpayers and then to have the lobbyist organisations that he tips money into advocate for what is essentially a cut to the wages of the workers who you know, do the work in his stores, who do the work in his brands, who shop in his stores, is outrageous. Like, he just doesn't care. They don't care. They're happy to lie. They're happy to manipulate the situation. They're happy to have the Wild West. You know, the lightest possible regulatory touch, except for when it comes to corporate bailouts and gifts for them. That's what it's about. So, anyway... Don't vote for Scott Morrison. I can't be any clearer than that. <laughs> or any of his friends. Or, or the Liberals, or the Nationals, or the LNP. Or I mean, the, yeah, they were all the same party. Yeah. All like, the same party. If you, if you got that many different party labels, you're changing the name that many. Would you trust somebody who turned up at your house with five different names? I don't think you would. Why would you trust a political party with that many names? You know, it's funny. I can't remember who said it. It might have been Catherine Murphy at The Guardian, who was like, you always know when elections coming, when the National Party start criticising the government. Yeah. It's like, but you're, you're the coalition partner. The you're, Deputy you're, Prime Minister. are the government. <laughs> you hold several ministries because of a quota system for men. I mean, sorry for a quota system for, for rural representation. Yeah, well, that's right. Look, let's talk about the uh, New Zealand travel bubble because this is this is some good news. We're going to start to transition into the good news section of the show because we've had a couple of um, deep, uh, uh, well, yeah, pretty negative conversations. Let's talk about some positive. Things. I mentioned I'm not having a great week. Yeah, look, uh, it's a it's a it's a rough time. It's a rough time. But from April 19th, Australians can go to New Zealand, which is the best news ever. If you happen to be both an Australian and a New Zealander, which I am. And for those of you who are out uh, making spurious accusations about my political ambitions, hi, thanks for tuning in. Uh, I'd like to remind you all that as a dual citizen, I can't run 
run for public office. So what a comfort to all of you. What a comfort they will find that. And to regular listeners of the show, can I just say I love you all and thank you for your support. Yeah, that's right. Um, we really appreciate it. Look, if you are one of the uh, people who is hanging out to get to New Zealand uh, and, you know, quite frankly with them raising their minimum wage and cutting uh, and increasing taxes on the mega wealthy, why wouldn't you want to go there? Um, <laughs> They're saying that there'll be... Jacinda Ardern Scott Morrison. Jacinda Ardern Scott Morrison. Who better represents my values? That's the question. That's the question. And Uh, Ben and I, obviously huge fans of New Zealand because I make him go there and I just like to fly the flag for places like Hamilton and Napier and uh, Blenheim, which is where my family are from. There you go. So about 100,000 people a week uh, from the 19th of April will be able to go. That's what they're predicting in terms of flight capacity. Uh, There are, of course, so many caveats on this. I'm not going to go through them all. Uh, what I will say is I'm going to echo the words of uh, St. Jacinda and say flyer beware. Uh, if there are outbreaks in the state where you are from, you may well be told you can't get on the plane. You may be told you can't come back. There are, there are of course, caveats on all of this. So, you know, do make sure that you look into it thoroughly if you're going to go. Do make sure that you take out all the appropriate insurances that you might need, that you check the conditions on your ticket because, you know, <laughs> if you think Alan Joyce is going to give you your money back out of the goodness of his heart, just ask anyone who's ever worked for Qantas how that goes. Um, it does not go well. Yeah, Captain Generosity. Yeah, so. that's right. Um, so I Qant- heart the workers juicy. Yeah, you know, just ask any of the ground crews who have now all been outsourced and had their wages cut. The man is a... He's a rapacious capitalist. Yeah, he is. Don't expect capitalists to have morals. That's not what that particular system is about. No. Um, So Qantas and Jetstar apparently are going to be first off the first flights off the rank. Virgin, sort of unsurprisingly, given the turmoil it's had, is saying that it might take them a bit longer to get themselves organised and get over there. Uh, But do check it out. You know, it's great to see that we can... Go somewhere. Go somewhere. And to New Zealand. And there's which, so many New Zealanders As I have explained to you in some detail, is God's own country. Yeah, and there's so many New Zealanders in Australia. There's so many Australians in New Zealand. It's, it, you know, there's a reason why it was nearly a state of Australia. We have a great connection with that, with the, the people there, the land there, the communities, um, you know, and they frankly, uh, showing us the way on some really important social and economic issues that I think more Australians should pay attention to. Yeah, absolutely. So do check it out, folks. Do do check it out. Now, Van, seabirds... Sand get, martins. ...are getting We're sand We're talking about castles. sand martins. Yeah, sand martins are getting a sand castle. So sand martins are uh, tiny, weeny, weeny little birds uh, that... Uh, migrate between uh, sub-Saharan Africa and England, which is just like, and they're tiny. They're like the size of your thumb. And of course, they have had uh, impacts on their population due to habitat loss. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's a bit of a theme. And also because of droughts in sub-Saharan Africa is really messing with their population. The problem they have is they fly to the UK for a lovely seaside holiday in Surrey and... (laughs) Uh, Sorry, but just the idea of a lovely seaside holiday in England, it it amuses me as an Australian. Yeah, yeah. I like it. (laughs) So they fly to Surrey, but of course people have been buying so much lovely seaside real estate Mm. in the UK that they're facing habitat destruction there. Well, the Surrey Wildlife Wildlife Trust was like, we're going to defend these very cute, tiny little birds who are really picky nesters. So Mm -hmm. they actually nest in sand. They nest in sandbanks and they dig tunnels and they 
lay their eggs at the end of a sand tunnel. They're quite cute. They're really cute. They're really cute. Yeah. And the Surrey Wildlife Trust partnered with a bunch of organisations and they've built like a massive 400-ton sandcastle. They've built a purpose-built sandcastle. Did you say a 400-ton sandcastle? Yeah, they were using nine-ton excavators to build it. Wow. It is massive. It is a huge <laughs> sandbank. And, yeah, like it's a, it's a sandcastle for sand martins, so the sand martin will be safe in England and have a proper sort of roosting area. Isn't that fantastic? That's very cute. I, it's definitely be, been a bird theme. This might be because, obviously, um, our comrade and leader, Sally McManus of the ACTU, has been, is a feral birder and has been on a birding holiday. So we've been getting yeah. a lot of, in our union mail, lots of pictures <laughs> of some of Australia's most fantastic bird life from the Secretary of the ACTU, which is not something I thought I would see in my lifetime, you know. But it's but great. here we are. Yeah. Um, Greg Combe, what about you? So um, I think he was into birds too. Actually, do you really? I think he kept birds. Yeah, he kept them. I think I think he did. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty sure. I'm not sure if he still does. I'm just thinking know. of all the ACTU leaders I've lived through. Like, you know, we didn't get snaps of Bill Kilty on birding missions or no um, Jeff Lawrence or Dave Oliver. They had no. other interests. They had different things. But yeah. selling McManus and the birds is yeah. it brings joy to my heart. Um, the other good news? Yes, more good news. Yeah, more, more good, good news. news is about California. We have almost blue skies in California. Oh, they're getting there. <laughs> so when I was growing up, as we all know, I'm very old. I'm 46 years old. And it was always a, like a joke, a popular joke about how bad the pollution was, yeah. in, particularly in Los Angeles, because obviously car-driven city, very limited public transport, and absolutely horrendous problems with smog and pollution. Like there are yeah. movies where it's a joke that LA is covered in smog. And that was the joke that you couldn't actually film things in LA that was set in LA because the smog meant you couldn't see it. Yeah, you'd film post-apocalyptic movies in LA yeah, and yeah. you wouldn't have to build a set. Right? No, yeah. no. That was the joke that LA looked like the set from Escape from LA. Yeah. <laughs> and But it was, I mean, it was funny, but it was also lethal. Yeah, terrible. And causing people to die from cardiopulmonary problems. And anybody who, you know, got caught up in the bushfires um, last year, uh, you know, in the smoke or experienced any of that will know what what smoke and smog can do, anyone who's been to, you know, China as well yeah. in the last few years. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I had that experience in China. Like, it's it's really confronting when you're in pollution that's bad. And of course, there's, there are cities all over the world that yeah. have these problems. Well, California, um, interesting ideologically, California, and it's, you know, in some ways very progressive, in other ways has created the tech bro disaster, but we are where we are. They have actually had a really aggressive uh, response to their air pollution problem because it was killing people. Yeah. And for starting from 1990, they brought in really heavy regulations around things like car exhausts and they've been pursuing an active policy to transition away from diesel fuel engines. And, in fact, it was something that Trump was trying to stop, like Trump was trying to use federal power to stop restrictions on diesel fuel engines in California, yeah. this massive crazy fight. Well, it turns out they got all of this science back because they've been doing intense monitoring about mm. the interrelation of um, exhausts, pollution to people dying and health effects. And they had absolutely slashed, absolutely slashed, just with things like diesel fuel filters and retrofitting old engines and things like that. Um, between Over the 24-year period um, that they were studying between like 1990 and 2014, they worked out that they had managed to slash 
pollution by 78%. 78%? Yeah, and it, it meant that 82% less people died. So California is... So 82% less people are dying as a result. Yeah, because they yeah. Regula- they regulated diesel exhausts. Yeah. And they also, but the diesel regulations also applied to things like shipping. But a lot of it was quite low-tech, like not massive infrastructure changes, mm. but just some really common sense pollution reduction. And this is why we love regulation, because the market adapts. California is still well, the eighth biggest economy on earth just by itself. Yeah, yeah. It, there has been no immense market failure. If you tell capitalism how to behave, it either behaves or goes broke. And that's why... And let's be honest, the vast majority of time, it behaves. You set the framework and capitalism finds a way to make money. That's what it does. Capitalism is like one of the most adaptive viruses since COVID. Like, it predates COVID by, by some well, distance. Yeah, I mean, right. Well, that's true. And if you, if you say, right, the new market is for um, massive pollution reductions, mm. like capitalists will, people who are, who have the philosophy of enterprise yeah. will find a way to do that. Like, don't get me wrong, I'm not a fan of capitalism, but if we have to live with it for the foreseeable, mm, mm. let's regulate it. And mm. what an amazing gain for somewhere like California. Like, 82% decrease in deaths from air pollution just based around common sense regulation. And, of course, that has all sorts of good positive knock-on effects just in terms of general health, in terms of the cost to, to, to the health system, in terms of, you know, just... Quality of life. People's quality of life. Not being on oxygen machines. Yeah. I mean, what a great outcome. What a great outcome through a little bit of regulation and a bit of commitment and people saying, you know, actually, we, we, want, <laughs> we want air that's breathable. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what people have said, that it's due to the passing of the Clean Air Act. And if there hadn't been a Clean Air Act, you know, this would have been the Wild West. And the thing is, the Wild West kills your lungs as much as yeah. destroys your labour conditions. Yeah, it's, it turns out it's not like it was in the cartoons. Right? No, it, was it wasn't. It really it was wasn't the way everyone. it was yeah. in the cartoons. Yeah. No, it yeah. wasn't It wasn't good. It's not like tripping over to gold nuggets in the street. No, no, no like it's not paint your wagon. Oh, there you go. So, yeah, sorry, yeah. everyone. Yeah. But... Um, but certainly, like unforgiven, but right? it's also yeah. like I do. It's frustrating because it's like so. California is moving towards an entirely electric vehicle future, yeah. And they're positioning to do that. They have created a market approach for that. They've yep. got people used to. They've created a social value from you know clean air and mm. a more responsible attitude towards transportation. Yeah, and. This is why the electric vehicle industry should be happening in Australia. Well, I mean, we saw like it's changing all over the world. We we saw that, and I discussed that on the um, the Ozpol uh, uh, webinar. Uh, on Thursday last week was that the the ALP National Conference um, has adopted some targets and some policies to reduce the cost of electric vehicles and of course Labor's had some good positions on electric vehicles now for for some time and we've seen again the Morrison government go from a position of kind of trying to ridicule this and, and spread lies about it'll end the weekend and you won't be able to get a ute that can tow a caravan, all things that are, are nonsense, right? But if you say them often enough, you start to go, well, maybe there's something to that. Well, there's nothing to that. The reality is electric vehicles are as powerful as any other kind of vehicle you're going to get. Um, and turns out we don't have that kind of electric vehicle revolution happening here that they're getting now in California. And people are missing out. People are missing out. We did yeah, one of our previous right. podcasts. We talked about how Norway. in Norway the electric vehicle market is outstripping the um 
diesel. Like it's just it's just happening. And so hopefully it's an opportunity that Australia will be able to embrace. We will get on that. That will become part. You know, once again, I'm going to say. Don't vote for the Morrison government. <laughs> Don't do it. What are you? What are you, you doing? Know, and if you're dissatisfied with the Labor platform and think it could go further and do more, like get involved. Yeah, agitate. Join the Labor Party. If, yeah. if you if you don't like labor policy, but you you think that they're probably more got the ideals a bit more your way, the thing about politics, you know, is that if you if you go the ideals of these people roughly align to mine, I'd like the policy to be a bit stronger here. I'd like this policy to be a bit different. The thing to do is to join the party. If you look at a party and you go the ideals of that party have no way aligned to mine, don't vote for them, right? But that's that's essentially how democracy works. And the good news is, the really great news, and I think we sort of finish around this kind of crescendo of, a, of great news, is that because we still live in a democracy, you are free to do that. You are free to join, free to get involved, free to put your two cents worth in. Start your own organisation, create own organization. a lobby group. You know, all of these things and the digital tools that have been provided in this horrible tech moment that we live in can actually be really useful. We started a podcast. In our shed. And now we're the number one political podcast in the country. And it's thanks to people like you who are listening right now going, you know what? I care about these issues. I want other people to know about these issues. So whatever your level of involvement, don't sit on the sidelines. Don't let other people make the decisions for you. Be part of it, whether it's just sharing information that you think is relevant and aligns to your values, or if it's getting involved, putting your hand up, getting in part of the debate, then do that too. This has been the week on Wednesday. It really has. <laughs> and can I just say a big thank you to my partner and co-host, Ben, who has really been just the most supportive and kind and wonderful person. So I've been having a time. Yeah. It hasn't uh, been easy. And he is a very smart, very insightful human being, oh, but he's also a really good partner. Oh. And he always remembers to feed the dog. <laughs> Vanny... Thank you so much. Um, remember, folks, uh, I'm blushing now. I'm, I'm a bit, um, I feel a bit shy about that. Uh, you know, um, remember, folks, you know, as I say on the weekend wrap, be kind to yourself and to each other. You know, that's got to be a fundamental principle that we live our lives by. And if we're not doing that, then what are we actually doing? Because, you know, share this podcast, do get the message out there. Do talk to each other. Do get engaged. Um, share it on Facebook, on Twitter, Instagram, wherever you get your podcasts. Help somebody else get the message by directing them to that platform as well. Uh, the Weekend Wrap will be back this weekend. I want to thank everybody uh, for letting me have uh, Sunday off for Easter. Uh, appreciate that. But I will be back uh, on this Sunday coming up. And I love you, Vanny. I love you too. Bye-bye. Bye.